0: morning. It's good to see you folks here today. My name is James. I'm glad to be here with you. Do me a favor. Go ahead and grab your Bible. You're open your Bible app, however you follow along. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Ooh, got you there, didn't I? You guys are all worried now. We take off one week for the parent-child dedication. James has forgotten what book we're studying. No, that's not it. Do me this favor. We're, we're going to start today in the Gospel of John. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. We're going to look at a couple verses in John, and then we are going to camp out in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to walk through chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. Last time we were together and we were in the Gospel of Luke, we saw John the Baptist just lighten into some people, right? He's preaching this hard, hard message about the need for a baptism of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And even though he was brutally honest, or maybe because he was brutally honest, Folks were just flocking to see him, right? People are coming out of the woodwork to hear and see John the Baptist. Now, maybe that seems odd to you, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. After we walked through that message a couple of weeks ago, I was so blessed by you guys. I had so many people come and thank me for throat punching them, you know, thank me for smacking them in the face and stepping on their toes. And all I was doing was delivering God's message. I love this church for lots of reasons, but. But one of them is there's so many people here who don't want any sugar-coated message, you know. God's Word's supposed to smack us in the face. We welcome the smackdown. And so I appreciate that about this church. I think that's awesome. So a person who likes that kind of message, they would flock to go hear John the Baptist, right? That kind of message, that kind of messenger. This guy who emerges basically from the wilderness, you know, wearing whatever he could scavenge off a dead animal and eating the stuff that he's finding on the ground, you know. John looks a lot more like a homeless guy than he does a preacher, but this message is so hard, and people are coming. And then there are folks who may not appreciate a hard message like that. They may not like the truth delivered like that, but they would still come to see a guy like John the Baptist because they like a big party. They like a carnival-type atmosphere, and John has this buzz about him. And I experienced something like this many years ago. I was down in Texas. I was visiting my best friend David, And it was late July. And if you've been in Texas in late July, it's normally like 1,400 degrees outside. It's really, really hot. And my buddy David says, hey, i got a good idea. Let's go to Dallas Cowboy Training Camp and stand outside all day and watch football practice. Not a game. (laughs) Let's watch practice and see if we can melt. That'll be fun. Now, I went because I love my buddy David. (laughs) I'm not a big fan of the Cowboys. He is. But i got to tell you the truth. Going to that camp was really neat. It was a neat thing to see. I was amazed, literally, there were thousands of people there who must not have jobs. (laughs) They were all on vacation like I was, I don't know, but they stood there all day outside in these 100-degree temperatures, honestly not even caring so much about the practice. It was when the players came back and forth. They wanted to be within 50 feet of Troy Aikman or Emmett Smith and take a picture. It was something like that. There's a buzz about it. So I get it. I can see a lot of folks showing up back in the day to hear John the Baptist just because it was unique. He had, you know, like that pro athlete or rock star status. They wanted to see what all the fuss was about. Now, if that's the reason that they showed up, then they were in trouble. They they were going to get more scorched by John's message than I was that day at Cowboys training camp because he was bringing it. So today we're going to look at what his motivating factor was. Why did John the Baptist preach the way he did? Why did he live the way he did? And so we're going to look at his mission statement and his purpose statement and see what devoted him to living a life that was totally devoted to pointing to Jesus. That's really the entirety of of John's job description. He's the guy who points to Jesus. And realistically, if you're here today and you're a Christ follower, that's a pretty good job description for all of us, right? So let's look at this passage And see how John the Baptist points to Jesus. Start there in John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8 with me. This is what John is going to do. This is his personal mission statement. John the Apostle writes, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness. What did he come to do? To testify about the light. So that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. And we're going to see in this passage in Luke today, there are a lot of folks who are wondering, hey, maybe John's the light. Maybe he's the Messiah. John makes it abundantly clear, no, he's not the light. He has this incredible ability to remain humble. John the Baptist is a phenomenal example in this for us. And we've got to be honest, if we are, we struggle in that area, right? We struggle with our pride. That's one of the real big stumbling blocks in the way that God has us wired. I remember as a kid, I used to love the Peanuts cartoons with Charlie Brown and Lucy and Linus. I don't know if those are still in syndication or not. And I looked for a particular cartoon this week. I couldn't find it. I wish I could have shared it with you. But, but I remember in the cartoon, it was Charlie Brown and Linus talking, and they were talking about what they were going to be when they grow up. And so in the first little strip, they're talking, and Linus says, hey, when I grow up, I want to be a humble little country doctor. Sounds nice, right? And you go to the second strip, and he goes, see, what I'll do is I'll live in the city and I'll zoom out into the country in my sports car. And when I get out there, I'll heal everybody. I mean, people will be coming for miles around. I'll heal them. I'll be world famous. And in the last, in the last strip, he says, I'll be a world famous, humble little country doctor. Sometimes humility really trips us up, right? Pride's a tough thing. I know that it trips me up. If anybody could have pride, it'd be John the Baptist. If you take away the way he dressed and the things he ate. But here's this guy. Other than that, he's the only guy other than Jesus to be filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still inside his mother's womb. This is the guy that in Scripture it says he's coming to prepare the way for the Lord. He's got a great job title. If we only read the first half of Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, this is one of those verses that could really get you in trouble. This is the kind of thing that will give you a big head. Listen to what Jesus says about his cousin, John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, that'll knock you right off your mountaintop, right? But John gets this. He understands that Jesus is coming to preach this message about eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, abundance. And for anybody to be in that kingdom, we're going to have to admit that we're not good enough to get there on our own. Pride isn't going to get us there. We're sinners in need of a Savior, and so John is on mission to point towards the Savior. He's going to point towards the light. That's what he does. And so that leads us to understand John's purpose statement. Flip over a couple pages or navigate over to John chapter 3 and verse 30. Because here John the Baptist explains, as I fulfill my mission, as I point to Jesus, here's why I'm doing it. This is what I'm all about. This is a verse you probably know. John chapter 3, verse 30. He says, he, that is Jesus Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. No room for pride in a purpose statement like that, is there? John is coming to point towards Jesus, and that's going to mean he's got to point away from himself. And that's what I want us to focus on as we study this passage today. There's this huge application challenge for all of us as Christ followers. We're going to see this neat scene in the text in Luke where John actually baptizes Jesus. But John is so good at his job of pointing to Jesus, of making sure he increases and John decreases, that when we get to that account, In verses 20 and 21, Luke doesn't even mention John. It's like he's not even there. You think John's offended? No. I think he would be thrilled. It's what he came to do. He came to prepare the way for Jesus, and he's just doing his job. He's just pointing to Jesus. So if you look at the outline in your bulletin, that's what we're going to focus on in this text. How do we apply this? How do we point people to Jesus? And I want to be real clear on this. There are tons of practical, important things we need to remember about living our lives in such a way that we point to Christ that aren't in this text. I'm not saying these three things are the only things we need to do. They're just what we see John the Baptist doing in this passage. We actually want to point to Jesus with every bit of our lives, right? Everything we say and everything we do. See, if we preach one message, but then we go out and live another, that's damaging to God's glory, right? So you can't be the guy that's quoting Bible verses all the time and inviting people to church and then also be the guy that's telling filthy jokes at your staff meetings, that's stealing coffee out of the break room. You can't do that. It destroys your witness. You can't be the lady that's walking around asking people, hey, what would Jesus do, but then also be the lady that fudges your expense report or spreads gossip. If you do that, you end up with a name we hear, All too often we become hypocrites. So there's more than just these elements involved in pointing to Jesus. We need to do it with every aspect of our lives. But in this passage we're going to look at, we see John the Baptist doing three things to fulfill this purpose that God has given him. The first thing is he warns people about the reality of coming judgment. Now he uses an illustration that folks would have got back in the day. He talks about the wheat and the chaff. And second, to point people to Jesus, we've got to be willing to confront sin. I know that's hard to hear. Let me tell you, I understand that gets uncomfortable. But this is what we're going to see John doing. John boldly confronts Herod in his sin. And so we've got to ask, if we truly love people, are we going to be willing to do that? If we really desire the best for people, we won't turn a blind eye to sin. That's why John is doing these water baptisms, right? He's not saving people. These people are coming up, and he's asking them, do you recognize your sinfulness? Do you recognize your need for a Savior? And finally, the third point, if we're going to point people to Jesus, we've got to embrace that purpose statement from John. We have to truly understand God has to increase. Jesus must increase, and we must decrease. Later, here in Luke, in chapter 14, he's going to explain real clearly, whenever we humble ourselves... He must increase, we must decrease. That's the person who's exalted. So we've got to understand God is sovereign, He's supreme, He's the ruler of all things. He's worthy of our reverence. And the only thing that would make us have any identity at all is our relationship with Him. He's got to increase. Now, when we accept God's grace, when we begin that relationship with Him, that pleases God. We're going to see this in the passage. That's what pleases him, not the stuff that we do, who we are in him. So let's jump in and read this account together. Follow along with me there in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. All these people had come, this big crowd, they were there in a state of expectation, and they were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. And John answered, he said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water but one who is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the barn, but he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. Herod also added this to his list of wicked things. He locked John up in prison. Before that happened, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven and God said, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. The so story starts out right there at the outset with a moment that might be tough for us, a moment we might have a hard time handling, but John the Baptist handles with ease. He's there, you know, and these crowds have come. He's gained this following. They're coming to hear him preach and take part in this baptism, and they're wondering, hey, maybe he's the God. Maybe this crazy guy out of the desert, this wild-dressing guy, maybe he's Jesus. I don't know. That doesn't happen to us. Nobody ever thinks, hey, maybe we're Jesus. But what would we do if they did? John doesn't go there for a second. He shuts it down. He says, no, I'm not him. He's greater than me. He's mightier than me. Everything he does is better than what I do. He says, I can baptize you in water. That's it. There's somebody coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's saying, I can can work on the external. That's all I got. Jesus is coming. He's going to work on the internal. His baptism is greater than mine. There's such a neat picture here in verse 16. Christ's humility is even better than John's. And John the Baptist is so humble, he's the guy who could take pride in his humility if you could do that. John's saying he's not worthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. What does that mean? Back at the time, there were no paved roads, right? So at best, you were walking on dusty or muddy roads. But then you got to remember, the animals also walked on those roads. And there was no trash collection service, and there was no indoor plumbing. I don't know what you're stepping in, honestly. Your feet have the potential to be really, really gross. And so is the job of the lowliest servant, the most humble of servants to take off shoes. And wash feet. And John is saying, Jesus is so great that I'm not even worthy to be the lowliest of servants at his feet. It's a show of great humility. And I hope we'll stop and remember in John chapter 13 what does Jesus do for the disciples? He's the one who stoops down and washes their feet, even the feet of Judas, who would later betray him. John the Baptist is humble. Jesus is the most humble person who ever lived. So Jesus' baptism is greater than John's. His humility is greater than John's. We're going to see his judgment is greater than anybody's judgment. On your outline, let's start addressing these things we need to be about if we're going to be pointing people to Jesus with our lives. And this first point says we've got to warn people about the reality of of judgment. Now, what is John the Baptist talking about there? Is he talking about judgment the way we like to judge, where we see somebody doing something and we want to tell them that's not right, but we don't want anybody to tell us the things we're doing aren't right. Is, is that what he's talking about? No. John's speaking specifically about God's ability, his alone, to judge the most important thing in our lives, period, and that's our faith. It's our belief. Have we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the crucial concept that John is talking about here. This is that place where we can observe somebody's actions, but we can't really judge because why? We don't see hearts. But Jesus can judge because he knows our heart. Now later in this gospel, in chapter 23, Luke's going to include this account. When Jesus is crucified, there's two criminals, right? One on either side. This is all about the division that Jesus creates among people because one of the criminals does what? He responds in faith. He says, today he will be with Christ in paradise. What does the other criminal do? No faith. That's the judgment that we're talking about here. Those criminals represent this division. And so here in this passage in Luke, he uses an example that everybody would have got. Everybody in this agrarian society would have understood. He said, here's the deal. Some people are going to be like wheat that is gathered into the barn. They're going to be safe. He said, some will be like chaff and they'll be burned up. And I guarantee the people back there understood the illustration. They're all farmers. Let me make it real clear in case you don't. Back in the day, the farmer would gather all the wheat, have it there on the threshing floor, and he'd wait for a breezy day, a good windy day, and he'd go down to the threshing floor with his winnowing fork. It looked like a big spork. It was a shovel with a fork at the end. And he'd go down there, and he'd scoop up the wheat, and he'd wait for that stiff breeze, and he'd toss it up in the air. The breeze had come through, and the wheat was heavier. It was weightier. It would fall down to the ground. But the chaff, the stuff that wasn't any good, it would blow over to the side. And so after the farmer had thrown all the wheat up in the air, he'd have this great pile of the good stuff. That's what he'd gather into his barn. That's a picture of the good fruit. And then over here to the side, there'd be all this chaff that had blown away. And he would sweep it up and throw it into the fire. And that's the picture. We can either respond with faith and we're going to be like the wheat. We're safe in the barn. We abide in a relationship with him. Or we're going to be like the chaff. We're going to be eternally separated from God. We're going to burn in an unquenchable fire. He says there at the end of verse 17. Now I ask, is that a popular message? To me, this seems to be one of those areas where I see people soft-selling the gospel. We like to preach a gospel message that that sounds good. It's all warm and fuzzy. God loves you. He has a great plan for your life, which is 100% true, by the way. But that's as much as we want to tell. That's the feel-good version of the story. And I understand It's dangerous. I understand it's hard because we don't want to be the the guy out there presenting this gospel message that's all turn and burn, right? We don't want people to be scared and to accept in Jesus so they won't go to hell so they try to buy some fire insurance salvation. I get that. But if we're going to point to Jesus with our lives, listen, we need to find a way to speak the truth in love in this area. And it's not a secret how to do it. The way is by pointing to Jesus. It's just the same way John the Baptist did it. I think it's really helpful. Establish the Bible as your baseline. The Bible is God's inspired, inerrant word to us. It's living and active. It'll stand up to any criticism that anybody wants to throw at it, I guarantee you. Establish the Bible as your truth and point to Jesus and point to God's word and share a verse. Share a verse like Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 with people. Because we have to be willing to explain there are consequences that are going to come if we don't respond with faith. And if you share a verse like this, listen to me, you're not judging people. You're not someone with a greater judgment than you, or me, or John the Baptist. Someone has already made a way for people to be reconciled. Do we understand? God wants us to be wheat He wants us to live in abundance. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. But if we choose not to do that, if he's placed that call in our lives and we choose not to, then Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 explains what happens. If we don't change our mind about who Jesus is and what he came to do, then because of our stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, we are storing up wrath for ourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous what judgment of God. See, when we point to Jesus, when we point to the Bible, we're not judging. Honestly, what we're doing is trying to snatch people away from the fire. We love people so much that we can't bear to think of them being eternally separated from God. They're going to be the chaff that's burned with unquenchable fire, and we don't want to see them separated from the God who loves them desires the best for them, created them, then we've got to go to people and point to wrath and consequences and judgment. And there is such clear hope in this passage. I hope you see it. Because right after John shares this wheat and chaff illustration, look back at chapter 3 and verse 18. Luke indicates this. He says, so with many other exhortations like the wheat and chaff, he preached the gospel to these people. See, Luke understands John's not smacking around people for sport because he thinks it's funny. This illustration of the division between the wheat and the chaff, Luke recognizes it as the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news. It's good news. People hear me on this. It may not sound like good news. It may not feel like good news when you're sharing about judgment and wrath. But here's the deal. If it's true that there's this division. If it's true, there's going to be a criminal on one side who has faith and spends eternity in paradise and another who doesn't and won't. If we really believe that, then it's eternally good news to warn people about this. God has provided a way of escape. I think John chapter 14 and verse 6, is intended to be the most inclusive verse in the entire Bible. That verse is where Jesus is so clear, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Listen, we've tried to take that verse and make it exclusive, and it's not supposed to be. Jesus is not saying, na, 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 you're not going to get in. It's not it at all. He's saying, yeah, it's a narrow path because there's one way. But if you take the right way, the path is so wide, it'll take everybody who professes faith. So practically, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and they say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, so I'll go to heaven someday. No. You have to point that person to Jesus. They will have to change their mind about Jesus. We've got to warn people about the reality of this coming judgment. Second point on your outline. To do that, we have to be willing to confront sin. How does that one hit you? Sound like fun? Pointing people to Jesus, like John the Baptist does, is going to require lovingly confronting sin. And I know that's not easy. Worthwhile things never are easy. But how we do it, how we approach it, is really important. Let's just say I walked up to you, any one of you, after the service today, you're standing out in the lobby, and I walk up and say, hey, good news, I just spoke with the governor and he has offered you a full pardon. Would that make you feel good? Or is there a chance you'd be offended? Would you say, what are you talking about, James? I haven't committed any major crime. I haven't done anything that's deserving of prison time. So, Is that pardon? That's not good news to me. It doesn't do me any good. But what if you had? What if you got busted? What if you'd been convicted of some serious crime and now you're facing the death penalty? And now you're facing life in prison without the possibility of parole and then I came up to you with my good news of a pardon. What had happened then? You'd be falling all over yourself thanking me, right? So let's take that to the next logical step. If we desire to point to Jesus and we walk up to somebody who's not a Christ follower... And what we say is, hey, I got good news. God loves you, and Jesus Christ died for your sins. Think that person's going to feel good? Or are they going to be offended? Are they going to respond, well, of course God loves me. I'm pretty lovable. I don't really have, you know, that many sins. I don't think Jesus need to die for my sins. So in the process of pointing that person to Jesus, we need to do what John the Baptist does. We need to help people recognize there's sinfulness. And listen to me, not by accusing, not by comparing. We got plenty of sin on our own, by pointing to Jesus because he's the one who can judge. Let's be practical. Again, the best way I think to do this is to point them towards the Bible. You ever see the old evangelism series? It was called Way of the Master. I used to love that. It was Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, a young Kirk Cameron. And these are guys who were just really bold, and they'd walk up to people with a copy of the Ten Commandments. Have the Bible open to that spot, and they'd walk through the Ten Commandments of people and go, Hey, you ever break this one? Hey, you ever tell a lie? You ever cheat? You ever steal? It's really fascinating to watch. And they'd come up to these people who'd go, Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a pretty good guy. And they'd, they'd come face-to-face to God's Word. And within two or three minutes, these people are saying, yeah, I'm good, they're now saying, you know, I'm a lying, cheating, murdering dirtbag. It's really funny to watch, but it deals with the most important thing ever. And we've said this before, earlier this year, when we walked through Galatians together. God didn't give us the Ten Commandments because we can keep them, right? He gave them to us because we can't. And we should recognize that. We're sinners, we're in need of a Savior, Paul made this so clear in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. He explained, Therefore the law has become our what? Our tutor to lead us to Christ. Why? So that we may be justified by faith. If we want to point people to Jesus, if we want them to recognize their sin and confront it, we've got to come to that spot where we recognize our total inability to earn it, to earn our salvation. And failing at keeping the law serves as our tutor. It points us to Christ. Failing actually leads us to change our mind about Jesus so we can be justified by our response of faith in him. Whatever we know about John the Baptist, he he must love people because he loves them enough to preach the law to them so they can recognize their sin issue. I've heard it said before, the opposite of love is isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Are we indifferent to people? John's bold. He does this with Herod, who's the Tetrarch at the time. That's a title that means ruler over a quarter. The area is subdivided. And Herod rules over this quarter region that includes Galilee. And he's a wicked guy. He's a bad dude. He seduces Herodias. And then he divorces his wife so he can marry Herodias, who did I mention is the wife of his half brother. So he commits adultery, which is a sin, by the way. And it's worse because Herodias is actually his niece, so he commits incest. This is a guy with issues. Verse 19, we see John doesn't tiptoe around him because he's Herod. He's in charge. No, John goes and he confronts him with his sin. And Herod responds like one of the thieves on the cross. Does he repent? Does he change his mind about who Jesus is? No. He chooses to be the chaff. He wasn't convicted of his wrongdoing. Instead, he adds to it by locking John up in prison eventually. Because Herod's a bad guy. We correlate Scripture. We learn later Herod ends up having John the Baptist beheaded. Confronting Herod with his sin ended up costing John his life. But he didn't because his purpose was that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. His mission was to point to Jesus, and John knew what we need to know. There's nobody coming to Christ unless they're convicted of their sin. Now, we need to point that out lovingly. This works best when we help people see we want the best for them. We desire abundance for them. But but here's the reality. We can't truly present the good news. It's not the true gospel if we don't help people address the sin issue and recognize their need for a Savior. Finally, last point on your outline. If we're going to do this, we've got to embrace John's purpose statement. We've got to have the same attitude that he had. We want to be pointing to Jesus and how great he is and then pointing away from ourselves. And with this, we get this incredible account in verses 21 and 22 of Jesus being baptized. And I hope we'll stop and realize just how unusual that whole thing must have been. I mean, here's John the baptizer, right? He's standing out in the Jordan River, and there's this line of folks coming, and I don't know exactly how it must have worked, but, but they're standing in front of John. And he says, okay, come on down. And he basically says, you're a sinner, right? And they go, yeah, I'm a sinner. Boom, down you go. <laughs> and he sends them on. Okay, next guy, come on. You're wicked, right? Yeah, I'm wicked. Boom, in you go. And, and he's doing this, and in line, all of a sudden, it's Jesus. John knows this, and I mean, what does he do? Call a timeout? Hey, Jesus, come over here. Jesus, maybe you didn't recognize this is the line for sinners. You're not a sinner. You you need to go find a different line, right? This is in all four of the gospel accounts. And in Matthew's story, he records John saying, hey, I know Jesus, let's trade places. You could baptize me, that'd be great. No. Jesus gets baptized by John. Why is that? Honestly, I think there's a lot of reasons. We don't have to settle on just one. But the one that, that is neatest to me is crystal clear Here at Jesus' baptism is when we get maybe the best picture in the entire Bible of the Trinity. This is the time that God the Father chooses to publicly anoint God, His Son, Jesus, with the person of the Holy Spirit. Now let me be clear on this. If you believe in the Trinity the way the Bible teaches, as a member of the triune Godhead, one God and three persons, Jesus already had the Holy Spirit. He didn't get it here. But for us, and then for everybody who comes afterward and gets to read the Bible, this is where we see this great picture of the relationship between the three people in the Trinity. So God uses this this baptism to inaugurate Jesus' public ministry. That's for sure one of the reasons. I think also this serves as an endorsement of John the Baptist's ministry. This is the thing that he was sent by God and equipped to do was prepare the way For Jesus, this is part of that work for John. And I think there's other reasons. We saw Rachel get baptized today. We practice baptism by immersion because of this. Here's Jesus foreshadowing his death and his burial and his resurrection. Tons of valuable things here. And in a way that I can't understand, I think this is real tangible, though. Even though John thought Jesus was in the wrong line because he had no sin, Here at his baptism, the sinless Jesus identifies himself with us as sinners. So, lots of reasons. It's a neat event. But every one of them is about John pointing to the fact that he's greater, he's mightier, he must increase, and we must decrease. And it's because he is so worthy. Baptism points to how much higher God's ways are than our ways, he's supreme. He's sovereign. He's awesome. He's worthy of our reverence. He must increase. At the end of verse 21, Luke shares that Jesus is praying and heaven is opened up. Now, that's unique. We've got to stop and pay attention here. In the Bible, when the heavens open up, God is getting ready to speak. So you've got to stop what you're doing. You've got to put away your phone and turn off the ball game. You want to pay attention to this. God is getting ready to talk. It only happens three times in the New Testament. Here at Christ's baptism, happens at the Mount of Transfiguration, and then when Jesus is going to the cross. Now the first two times, God speaks to reveal Jesus is worthy. He must increase. He, he, he speaks to reveal that Jesus is God. Then there at the cross, the heavens also open up to reveal that Jesus is going to be the Savior through the cross. So this is a big, big deal. This is the moment that John's whole life is really about, pointing to Jesus, being humble, pointing to him instead of ourselves. And John decreases so much that even though he's the one there in the water who's going to baptize Jesus, he doesn't even make it into the story. All we see recorded by Luke is the three members of the Godhead. God says that Jesus is his beloved son. We see the Trinity there. God the Father speaks. God the Son is there being baptized. God the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And God says, Jesus is the same as me. He's as much God as me. He's just as worthy as me. So that's huge. But then he also says this. He says, he's my beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. I think there's so much application there for us. Because you stop and think about it just for a second. What had Jesus done up to this point in time to please God? We don't really know, right? We didn't get much in the Bible about him as a boy except for the time at the temple. We know this is kind of the kickoff event of his public ministry, so he hasn't done any, any cool miracles yet. He hasn't done any miraculous healings. What's Jesus been doing to please God? He's been working as a carpenter been growing up. See, this is huge. God's not any more pleased with me because I love Jesus and stand up here and tell you about him than he is with you when you love Jesus and do your job in a way where he gets all the glory. It's all the same. Why is God so pleased here in verse 22? It's for the same reason that he's pleased with any one of us when we respond to the gospel message with faith, because then we get to be called what? His children. That's why he's so pleased. It's a beautiful verse. And we can use this. This is why he gives us the Bible when we're pointing to Jesus. We want people to understand this fact that when they recognize their need to be saved, we put our faith in Jesus, that pleases God, because he desires all people to be saved and reconciled back to him. So what do you think? Will we do it? Will we be Christ followers like John the Baptist, who continually for his whole life points to Jesus Christ? Will we be burdened? You've got to ask yourself, are you truly broken for all the folks around you who if they don't know Jesus are going to be like the chaff? be eternally separated from God. They'll be burned with the unquenchable fire if they never recognize their sin, never profess their faith in Jesus. They can't be gathered into the barn then, can't abide in relationship with Jesus. Do we really care enough to warn people about the coming judgment? Do we really care enough to help people confront their sin, point how awesome God is, Let me close with this. I'm sure everybody in the room knows the story of the Titanic, the unsinkable ship that hit an iceberg on its maiden voyage and sank, killing 1,517 people. That's a lot of people. We know the basic story, but what many people do not know is a sad fact that often doesn't come out in the telling of this tale is that many... Maybe most of those lives could have been saved. Did you know that? There was another ship, the Californian, that passed by. They were within sight of the Titanic. They had radio contact with the Titanic 40 minutes before it hit the iceberg. When the Titanic hit the iceberg and they shot up their distress flares, the officer on duty on the Californian saw them but didn't know what they were. And so he went down to try and wake up the captain. It was almost midnight at this time. And he tries to wake up the captain, but the captain was sleepy. And he said, I'm sure it's nothing. Let me go back to bed. And what kind of feeling does that stir down in the pit of your stomach? We're awfully quick to judge that captain, aren't we? Because he was more interested in his sleep. He was more interested in his comfort than the lives of these 1,500 people who died and he could have been involved in saving them. How many people do we come in contact with? Every day. At school, at work, the gym, the grocery store. I know we don't see hearts, but here's the deal. They don't know Jesus. And we're not willing to point out this coming judgment, if we're not willing to help them confront their sin, if we're not willing to point to how awesome God is, they're going to die. Be eternally separated because I'm not real comfortable talking about wrath. I'm not real comfortable pointing towards sin. Can we do this together? Can we point to Jesus with our whole lives? Even if it would cost us as much as it cost John the Baptist, it cost him his life. Can we be this kind of church that God would desire for us to be? We can warn people of wrath. We can help them confront sin. We can point to how awesome God is. Can we do this together? Pray with me. Daddy, thank you for your word. I'm terribly convicted that I don't, I don't do it like John the Baptist. I know you've fearfully and wonderfully made me, You've wired me to do it in the way you want me to do it. You've given me all the gifts. God, help us to search our hearts. I feel like sometimes I'm... I'm really excited about talking about how awesome you are God but I don't I don't want to talk about wrath I don't want to point out people's sin God can we do it just the way John the Baptist did Can we put aside indifference and comfort and be willing to be willing to fight for people and be willing to snatch people from the fire God what if you desire to use us that way and we miss out on this blessing. God, help us. Help us to be the church. Help us to be the individual Christ followers you want us to be. Help us to apply this teaching in our lives. We love you so much. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.